Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Jerry Silver. Uh, He's a co-inventor, part of NerveGen Pharma, and a professor of neurosciences at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, where I went to school too. Uh, We're going to talk about a project he's working on that involves rat nerves, uh, repairing them and rejoining them with the spine, which probably holds a tremendous amount of promise for people that have, uh, you know, nerve damage and problems themselves. So, Jerry, thanks for coming. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. If you would, tell me about your project then. What are you working on in your own words? Uh, The project that we worked on to establish NerveGen, is that what you'd like to me to have, have me focus on or what I'm doing now? Oh, let's, well, tell me what you're doing now and then you know, we'll pick and see which one's more exciting or maybe cover both. You know? uh, well, what we're doing now uh, is uh, a focused group of experiments uh, to use our regenerative peptide, uh, the one that NerveGen has licensed from Case Western, uh, primarily in chronic spinal cord injury models. So our early work uh, using this regenerative peptide was in acute models. But of course, the spinal cord injury community uh, is largely comprised of people who have had their injuries for some time. And so that's what we're focused on. Uh, We're focused on cervical spinal cord injuries, which are the most abundant type of injury in people. Uh, Over half of all people with spinal cord injury uh, break their necks. And th- those people lose the ability sometimes to breathe if the lesion is high enough above the motor nerve cells that control the diaphragm. And they also lose uh, arm and hand function. So with, with two collaborators, a graduate student in my lab and a postdoctoral student in England, we're focusing on both the diaphragm and recovery of breathing uh, after cervical spinal cord injury. And in my lab, we're focusing on recovery of arm and hand function. Um, so those are both in chronic spinal cord injury models. Well, all right. I'm, I'm thinking, I guess, of Christopher Reeve. I don't know. If, I'm sure you're aware of his case or what his case was, but yeah, what, what were the particulars of him? Does that, is that uh, close to home on what you're working on? Incredibly close to home. First of all, I met, I met him a couple of times. Oh, cool. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be given an award uh, that, that is uh, because of him. So I won the Christopher Reeve Joan Irvine Research Medal. Uh, so, so, so Christopher Reeve was supported by Joan Irvine. She donated lots of, of, of funds to his charity, the Reeve Irvine, focused uh, so, somewhat uh, at the Miami Project, a, a little bit, and, and uh, the Christopher Reeve Irvine Research Trust. So I, I won his medal. So this is, I think, 2014, probably. And uh, or earlier than that, yeah, I can't remember when I won. But anyhow, I was invited to New York to win the medal or to get receive the medal. And I met him there and Dana as well, his wife. Oh, very cool. He had a high cervical injury because he was thrown from a horse. 
So he couldn't. Yeah, was his high enough where he yeah. was totally paralyzed from the neck down? And did he, he have trouble totally, breathing? He was totally paralyzed and he lost his ability to breathe on his own. So he spent the rest of his life uh, on a respirator. Unfortunately. So, I mean, it would be fantastic. We, we could get people off their respirators at least. Mm. It'd be a great So t- tell me about your work with rats. What did you figure out uh, to help restore nerve function? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll keep it really simple for your uh, your audience. The work started many, many decades ago uh, when I was uh, an assistant professor. And I, I was interested in the basic question uh, that was related to development. And I asked the question for about the first time ever, why nerves don't grow normally where they don't. There are places where you don't want nerves to grow. For instance, uh, out of the pupil of your eye. You you want your optic nerve fibers to go out the back end of your eye to join the optic nerve. Mm. And you don't want nerves in your spinal cord to cross the midline over and over again. You want them to stay on one side or the other. So your brain knows left from right. So at, at those points where the nerves make decisions to grow someplace, but not others, we found in the tissue where the nerves don't grow, a family of molecules called proteoglycan. And one in particular, chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan, was in great abundance. That was in the embryo. Now, your readers will be familiar with this family of molecules if they ever go to a a drug aisle in in any store and see uh, over-the-counter meds like osteobiflex or or glucosamine. Those drugs are basically ground-up sharp cartilage which has a huge abundance of chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans. And those proteoglycan molecules are composed of sugars called glucosamine or chondroitin. And and so you can buy them. I'm not sure why people actually buy them. I think to help keep their joints moving well because cartilage is full of proteoglycan. And if your joint cartilage is getting old and arthritic, people think that if they eat the stuff, they can get better, but that's that's not true. It doesn't work. basically throwing your money away, but some people swear by it. So, so that's where it started in development. We found that proteoglycans are present when nerves don't grow normally. And then we asked the question whether these boundary or barrier molecules reappear after injury to the central nervous system, mm. includes the brain and spinal cord, to block nerve regeneration. And indeed, we found that. So when, if you make a lesion uh, just about anywhere in your central nervous system or peripheral nervous system for that matter, the developing scar tissue that forms in the brain or spinal cord is full of chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan. And we went on to show that those proteoglycan molecules in the scar block nerve regeneration. And we did that two ways. One, the first way was to use an enzyme that is made by bacteria that have evolved a strategy to eat through our defenses. So these these bacteria are called proteus vulgaris. Don't get it. They're really bad. They live in swamps, and uh, they've learned how to make an enzyme called chondroitinase. So ACE means enzyme, and chondroitin is what they ingest. And proteoglycans are present in lots of our barriers normally. So these bacteria make this enzyme to eat through us, to get through, uh, you know, to get through us, uh, uh, you know, to other cells. Nerves seem to be surrounded by, you know, obviously a protective layer so that they don't, you know, they they can transmit signals, etc. Yeah. So when a nerve is partially damaged, damaged like nicked, 
I guess I would guess that the body can repair it in the right way. It can, you know, patch the hole, I guess, for lack of a better word. But under what conditions, if a nerve is damaged in such a way that it won't repair properly, why, what's the difference there? Why would it repair right. properly in some ways and not in others? So you, you may be uh, thinking about the difference between peripheral nervous system and central nervous system. In the periphery, that is the nerves that come out of the spinal cord or from sensory receptors that are in the skin that go into the spinal cord, that's called peripheral nerve. And peripheral nerve, if nicked or crushed, can regenerate over several uh, of your digits. They have a hard time growing all the way from your brachial plexus or in the sciatic nerve down all the way to your toes. They can go over a, a joint or two. So if you, if you nick a peripheral nerve out near the periphery, near your hand, uh, they can regenerate. But if you even make the smallest of nicks uh, in the central nervous system, you're done. And none of those nerves, if cut, no matter how small the lesion, can regenerate. So uh, a partial spinal cord injury, a partial nick of the spinal cord, if you cut the nerve fibers, that's it. They will not regenerate. Why? That's what we're trying to find out. And one of the reasons that they don't regenerate is they become surrounded by chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans uh, that are part of the forming wound tissue in the central nervous system. In the peripheral nervous system, that wound tissue is counterbalanced by growth-promoting factors in the periphery. So you can overcome the barrier in the periphery, but you can't in the central nervous system. There just aren't enough goodies to say, come here or go faster. And so well, what, if, what if you were able to take two ends of a severed nerve and put a, like a sleeve material around it that not only pulls them together, but has some of the growth factor on the inside? Oh, good question. You're going back over 100 years to some of the most classic. If you didn't know this and you just came up with this idea yourself, you're brilliant. So I think, I think the genius is in you, perhaps, because this is not your field. But those experiments were done many, many years ago, over 100 years ago in the lab of a fellow named Ramoni Cajal. And then in more modern times, around the 1980s, by a group whose leader was Albert Aguayo. And they did exactly your experiment. They took a spinal cord and they cut it. That paralyzed the animal. But then they took a piece of peripheral nerve and they placed one end above the lesion and the other end below the lesion trying to bridge the spinal cord with a piece of peripheral nerve that can regenerate. And interestingly, the nerves from above the lesion could get into the bridge, which is not peripheral nervous system, and regenerate hugely long distances. The problem was at the other end of the bridge, that insertion of the peripheral nerve into the spinal cord caused damage and scar tissue and lots of proteoglycans, and that's where the nerves stop. So they can go into the bridge but they can't get out. Kind of like Hotel California, you know, you can yeah, check yeah. in, but you can never leave. So, that, so that's, that's exactly what people have done. We repeated those experiments by Aguaya, but we added the chondroitinase enzyme that those bacteria make to break down those proteoglycan barrier molecules at the end of the bridge. And lo and behold, the nerves can exit the graft now for the first time, you know, in history, and then innervate the spinal cord. And we could show recovered arm and hand function. Wow, that's amazing. And so, so that, but that's a very, very laborious uh, and surgically invasive procedure. You can imagine, you know, inserting a piece of peripheral nerve above the lesion into tissue that works. 
So above the lesion, your spinal cord is doing really good. So now you're going you're going to ask whether you can stick a piece of peripheral nerve in there. Uh, if the lesion is near the you know your thoracic spinal cord, you might be willing to do that uh, because you you know you won't do harm. But if the lesion is high up near your respiratory centers, you don't want to damage what's already working. You you may lose the ability to breathe or lose more function in the arm. So it, it, that's a risky thing to do. But we clearly showed long time ago uh, that you could get that strategy to work if you use the enzyme. Quick question here. So yeah. if I'm imagining, you know, myself standing up straight and I, and I chop my spine right in the middle. Yeah. And like you said, you put this peripheral nerve in there. You said it'll grow, I guess, from top down, it'll grow into the, into the graft, but yeah. it'll stop before it reaches the bottom. Yeah. So what happens is, so nerves that are motor nerves come from your brain and say, that say move those go into the bridge from above because they come from the brain and go down your spinal cord. The sensory nerves, you know, that feel that allow you to sense come from below. Both types of nerves get in because they enter the, the graft before there's any scar. So they get in right away. But the nerve graft is very long. So by the time the nerves get to the other end, the scar is formed and they can't get out. Why wouldn't they approach from both ends and the middle would be left scarred and not, you know, uh, the, in one direction. No, you're, you're, in your model, you cut the spinal cord. You're, not, you're bypassing that with your peripheral nerve above and below. The problem is inserting the graft itself causes damage, and that causes scarring, but it takes time to mm. form. So the nerves that have been cut right there near the entrance of the graft, above or below your lesion, go in, motor from above and sensory from below, and they grow gangbusters, long, long distances. But the problem is when they get to the other side of the peripheral nerve graft, which is growth promoting, now they see scar and they can't get in. They can't get out of the graft. They can't get into the spinal cord above or below. So you're, 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 you're in trouble. But they can if you give the enzyme chondroitinase to break down the scar barrier molecules, the chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan. So that's chondroitinase. So we showed in a number of models that if you give chondroitinase this enzyme and you, and you inject the spinal cord uh, after injury to it, or after grafting experiments like the one you'd mentioned, uh, you can get recovery of function. That, that was pretty dramatic. However, here's the problem with the enzyme. It's bacterial. Uh, you don't really want to put bacterial enzymes in your body. You might make antibodies to them. It's heat labile. So these, these bacteria um, can live in your body. They can protect the enzyme. And when they release it, they release it in abundance right near them. But the enzyme itself is not stable. Uh, at body temperature. So it degrades very rapidly. That's another problem. And the, a major problem is that um, you, you have to inject the enzyme into the spinal cord where you want it to work. And that, that's another surgery because you don't want to really stick a needle in the spinal cord. So those chondroitinase experiments are still going on uh, around the world. Th that, that observation has been reproduced literally hundreds of times. It's a very, very solid biological finding. Proteoglycans are inhibitory and they can become they can be overcome by chondroitinase. But wouldn't it be better if you didn't have to touch the spinal cord at all? And that leads to the work that founded NerveGen. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So we discovered the proteoglycan barrier molecules in 1990. Uh, we discovered them in the spinal cord and we discovered them in the periphery of the eye near your pupil to, to disallow the nerve fibers to go where they shouldn't. But it took 20 years 
uh, of work uh, and kind of serendipitously actually to discover the receptor that the nerve cells make that recognize the inhibitory proteoglycans because cells need a receptor to sense molecules around them. And in 2009, working with the John Flanagan group at Harvard, uh, we discovered the very first receptor that nerves make uh, that, that allows them to interact with the proteoglycans uh, to stick them in place. Now, here's what happens if a nerve sees proteoglycans. Uh, if a nerve sees proteoglycans and it has this receptor, it will grow onto the proteoglycan molecule. But this receptor being present and upregulated the longer the nerve is in, in the presence of the proteoglycan or a cut nerve, it upregulates these receptors. These receptors that bind to the proteoglycan entrap the nerve tip, the cut nerve ending that's trying to grow like a fly on flypaper. So this is a very entrapping, super adhesive interaction uh, in the lesion that doesn't turn the nerve fibers away like they do in the embryo because they, these molecules also have a very whopping negative charge, uh, which turns nerve fibers away. But in the adult, they make this re sticky receptor called receptor protein tyrosine phosphatase. And it's a member of, a, a third member of a family called sigma. So this receptor upregulates on the adult nerve cell once it's cut. And now pretty glycans are being produced. That nerve receptor, is entrapping. It sticks the nerve tip in the vicinity of the proteoglycans and locks them in place so they can't move. Interestingly, these same receptors are involved normally with creating a sticky connection between one nerve cell and another called a synapse. So you, you've probably heard of synapses. That's where nerves yeah. normally make con sticky, sticky contact with another uh, nerve you know, next to it or in line with it those sticky receptors play a good role. They cause a synapse to form. And that synapse now is locked in place almost forever and surrounded by proteoglycans in another scar-like structure called the perineuronal net. Um, so the, in the lesion oh. itself, there is proteoglycans in the scar and the nerve cells get stuck in a synaptic-like uh, ending uh, with glial cells. I call that synaptic doom. So it sounds like the pieces of the puzzle are coming into place. You can, I guess, selectively dissolve away coatings of the nerve in certain spots. Right. The chondroitinase. Right. You can do that with chondroitinase or you can block the receptor. Maybe there's two new kinds of grafts possible. Maybe one is to take a nerve above and below the lesion and, you know, essentially eat a whole into the, the casing surrounding the nerve above and below and then graft on another nerve so you don't yeah. have to really cut into the spine. And then another thought was, what if you make synaptic bridges, you know, where a nerve is damaged uh, instead of trying to directly graft onto it? You know, if you make one or more synaptic bridges and then, or one synaptic bridge and then have another nerve come out of there, maybe that would work better. Well, that would be nice if we could do that. So we're, we're talking about two different phenomena now. Regeneration, Frank long-distance regeneration is defined as a nerve that's cut in the spinal cord or brain and grows through or around the lesion to get to, to, get to its synaptic target. That's called regeneration. In that circumstance, you have to get rid of the proteoglycans in the scar 
or build a bridge around the scar with a peripheral nerve graft. That's regeneration. The other kind of recovery that you can get is called sprouting. And sprouting occurs from nerve cells that remain healthy after the lesion has occurred. So for instance, if you have a spinal cord lesion that's partial, that doesn't cut every single nerve fiber of a tract, say a tract that's involved with motor functions that says, move your right arm. So that tract is cut, but not completely. And there are some remaining nerves that are already hooked up and they go all the way to their targets in the lower part of the spinal cord to move the arm or the leg. Those remaining nerves uh, have the potential to sprout little collateral fibers, little branches that go a short distance to the nerves near them that receive information from above, but those nerves have been cut by your lesion. So the ones that are alive and happy and healthy can sprout over to the denervated nerve cells and supply synapses to them. However, that doesn't happen very well. Why? Because of the net. So the perineurinal net is like a little mini scar around every synapse uh, in the central nervous system that maintains the synapse where it ought to be, but it curtails the ability to sprout normally. Sprouting can occur, but it's very, very slow and very sluggish. So that's why people, for instance, after they have a stroke or after they have a spinal cord injury that's not complete, can improve somewhat. So, you know, with a lot of rehab, you can get better after a stroke a little bit. And with rehab, you can get better after an incomplete spinal cord injury, even a big, severe, albeit incomplete spinal cord injury by sprouting. So proteoglycans get in the way in two places. Uh, that sprouting phenomena is very difficult to direct. So you're talking about directing sprouts. You're kind of hoping that the nerves are smart and sprout to where they have to go over a short distance. And that, that's typically what happens. So if you give the chondroitinase enzyme, for instance, in the spinal cord itself, you get a lot of sprouting and that can lead to recovery, okay? So that's primarily how our peptide works. It promotes this short distance sprouting of nerves that are still intact, are remaining, uh, that, that can give uh, input, information to connections uh, that have been denervated, that have, been, have lost their synapses because of the lesion above, okay? So uh, our peptide blocks that receptor, which allows them to sprout really, really well. well. To control the sprouting though, why don't you use the same uh, compounds that fixate you know, a nerve tip in a certain area so it can't move? Well, you don't, you, you actually want, so what you want to do to encourage sprouting is to get rid of the net for a little while or overcome it. So you can let that nerve that wants to sprout over a short distance to innervate its denervated neighbor, allow that nerve that opportunity. So you don't want to fix it. You want to allow it to occur. But then once it occurs, you want to take that sprouting drug away. So you, the synapse that newly forms can now form again. So you want to use our peptide only for a little while, not forever. You want to allow the sprouts to occur normally uh, and then reconnect, but then take that peptide away so those sprouts can then solidify themselves because the proteoglycan in the net it reforms uh, after you take either the enzyme away, which basically is heat labile, so it goes away by itself, or our peptide, which we deliver uh, for several weeks, but then we stop and then recovery is very robust.
Indeed. You, let the, uh, the, you said that it's hard to control the direction of the sprouting. So yeah. what direction well, does it take? Is it form like a natural branching pattern or what is yeah, it? Do? Yeah, they, they know where to go. Uh, don't forget that the branching phenomena is relatively short distance. And, and those branches are likely called, say, come here by the cells that have lost their uh, connections. Uh, the cells that have lost connections tend, if you exercise a lot, to, to make uh, trophic factors like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or NGF, that say, come here, come here, come here. The problem is the proteoglycans in the net say, don't go, don't go. And they say, don't go a lot louder than the neurotrophins say, come here. So if you get rid of the proteoglycans in the net or overcome them with our peptide, then the sprouts go where they need to go. And the, and the recovery that we see is spectacularly robust and normal, not abnormal. Yeah, animals get better, not worse. Oh, so you don't have to try to control where the sprouting goes if you it don't goes see, in the right direction. Well, it seems to go in the right direction. At least so far, we've seen, we haven't seen weird, abnormal patterns unless we push really too hard, if we get too much of a good thing. One of the nerve pathways that sprouts a lot, really, really strong, after we use our peptide or the enzyme, is a group of, of nerve cells in your midbrain that make serotonin. The transmitter serotonin is a neuromodulator and our peptide allows for incredibly robust sprouting of serotonergic fibers that are spared by the lesion, albeit they small in number. After the injury, they sprout like crazy in the denervated part of the spinal cord. And the, the production of serotonin is very important to allow the few nerve fibers that are left that control voluntary movements to function normally. So serotonin lowers the threshold of activation of the remaining circuits so they can, so the small little whisper of commands from above can now become a shout, a scream, and say, move, move, move. And now the animal can move normally with the small remaining fibers that are left. And they too can sprout as well, but not as well as a serotonergic. They sprout the best. And other systems of nerve fibers also sprout. So sprouting is really, really the key to spinal cord injury recovery uh, in the presence of our peptide. We really haven't seen huge amount of regeneration across the lesion with our peptide. That's in the spinal cord model. I mean, we have seen really nice regeneration in the peripheral nervous system in our models that study heart uh, scarring, uh, in models of uh, multiple sclerosis, where we see uh, remyelination in the lesion. In a model of stroke, we see beautiful regeneration around the penumbra of the stroke, uh, a lot of serotonergic innervation uh, and sprouting. But sprouting is the key and, and very, very critical. Do you feel like all the pieces of the puzzle are now in place? Well, the pieces that, you know, it, it well, can go to yeah, clinical trials on people or not yet? The clinical trials are dependent upon robust uh, recovery in animal models that precede in clinical trials. And I can tell you that uh, our group uh, in a spinal cord injury contusive model that, that was severe uh, using peptide at, at the low dose that we started was nice, but it wasn't spectacular. It was nice. And we only had 30% of our animals respond. A group in Germany, independent from my lab, uh, reproduced our work on spinal cord contusive injury using a much more severe lesion than ours. They hit the spinal cord even harder than we did. And they use a whoppingly high dose, uh, which the company knew was safe. 
the peptide is very, very safe and tolerable uh, without any side effects at very high doses. So the only information I gave the German group was that you could use really high amounts. They picked 500. So we, we started at 11 micrograms per animal per day. They went as high as 500. And their results were spectacular. With a very, very severe uh, spinal cord injury, our results gave an average of three walking points on a walking scale that's rated zero to 21. So they could, we got three points of recovery. Not bad, not great. They got nine full points. It was re really incredible on average. And 70% of their animals were responders. Now, when they look at only their responding animals, those 70%, right? And they looked at just them, then they got 12 full points of recovery. It was unbelievable. Yeah, wow. Unbelievable. I mean, they went from a six, which is a very low score on the on this rating scale, all the way to, to 18, which is almost 21, which is normal walking. Unbelievable. If, I could, if you could see the movies of those animals uh, walking, they walk with their tails upright, they run across a balance beam, and they can even walk up a, a vertical ladder. I mean, it's hard enough for me to walk up a ladder. Uh, but, but you should see these ads. It's unbelievable to see these these ads. in the German study walk up a walk up a ladder with their hind limbs. Yeah. What's the next step then? The, the next step is for Nerdgem to do clinical trials. The animal results, the sprouting is so robust, and the connections are so well placed. Uh, and there may also be remyelination because the precursor cells that make myelin also have this receptor. So we see so much sprouting and. and Others have reported remyelination uh, of the sprouts. The results are so robust, unprecedentedly robust. That is 12 full points. Nobody gets 12 points. I mean, yeah. the, best you'll, the best you'll ever see is like six points. You know, it'd be a good slogan for nerve gen is you could say, we've got a lot of nerve. You got a lot of nerve, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really incredible. This kind of recovery in the animal models are so robust. That's at acute stages. So after acute injury, waiting one day to start the injections of the peptide, uh, you can, with, with higher dose peptide, get a, a huge amount of recovery. Now, uh, my lab and my collaborator uh, are showing that we get really nice recovery. It's just starting. We haven't published this yet. This is in the earliest stages of this work. Uh, so I can tell you that there's, there's already suggestions but we're not done yet and we're not finished. We have a long ways to go. But there are suggestions, there are hints that this is also going to work robustly in chronic spinal cord injury as well, especially in the respiratory system. Uh, because we did publish a paper showing that actually, now this is one you have to sit down to listen to. So I hope you're sitting down because you might fall over if I tell you this. It turns out that over time, after injury of the spinal cord or a stroke, uh, that sprouting response that I told you about uh, that's very slow and sluggish is actually going on at a very, very slow pace, we found. But that those sprouts, even though they're occurring at a very slow rate, are being smothered by the proteoglycans in the net. Although the sprouting occurs, the function of those sprouts is being curtailed, smothered by the net for some unknown reason. We have no idea why this is occurring. So now if we let the animals recover for long periods of time, and the longer we wait, the better the results are, 
When we use the chondroitinase enzyme in a model of recovered breathing and arm function, the recovery was better and more rapid in chronic spinal cord injury because of this slow, slow sprouting that's smothered by the net. So now with the enzyme, the net is dissolved, those synapses start to work right away. We saw recovery, full recovery of breathing in an animal that hadn't taken a breath on one side of the spinal cord for over a year. And we saw full recovery in one week. So that paper is published. Uh, it's by Warren et al. in Nature Communications. So you, you can read that yourself. That, that, that paper in Nature Communications is available to the public because it's, it's, it's open access. Well, very good, Jerry. We're just about out of time. But I, I don't know how long will people have to wait until this is in the clinic, but um, where can they go to find more information and keep tabs on what's going on? Right. Well, they can Google me, my okay. name, Jerry Silver, and they can find the papers uh, that are available, uh, open access uh, that way. Or okay. they can go to the NerveGen website. Uh, I guess it's NerveGen.com. And there's a whole uh, story there about me, about the company, about clinical trials, about who, you know, the members, uh, the really fantastic team that they put together of people. And uh, as far as I know, I'm, so what I'm hearing is that clinical trials phase one are, are, are slated to begin uh, first quarter of next year. So that's, that's soon. You know, so that'll be, you know, uh, dose response, pharmacokinetics in healthy human volunteers, and then efficacy, efficacy studies uh, should come, should follow thereafter. But Excellent. I mean, the, the results in animals are so robust. I have incredibly strong, albeit guarded, uh, optimism uh, for future success of the company and human. Do you think there may be like a compassionate use exemption or a way to speed this along faster? Well, I mean, if they start, if they start to see um, robust recovery uh, in patients, I, I would hope so. I mean, okay. for sure, our best results so far are in the respiratory system. So recovery of breathing uh, was remarkable. But we also saw rapid recovery of arm and hand function uh, in our chronic injury model. So okay. hopefully uh, we'll see you know, robust results uh, in, in our human patients. Uh, they have to you know, pick the patients properly you know, they, they can't, patients with, you know, complete spinal cord injury, complete transection, uh, there you're going to have to build a bridge. I told you how you can do that, but so, right, right. So, so patients who have some residual function, and actually most patients do, most patients with spinal cord injury have some residual function. So usually it's very rare that the lesion is absolutely complete, but that's, that's actually rare. Also, you know, the peptide works in, in, in animal models of MS really well for remyelination. So the company is interested in both spinal cord injury and M MS uh, early on. Yeah, well, that would be a whole other subject, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, Jerry. The stuff you're doing is amazing, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.